Hello and welcome to The Rob Burgess Show. I'm, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 54th episode, our guest is Dr. Elizabeth Yuko. Dr. Elizabeth Yuko is a bioethicist and the health and sex editor at She Knows, as well as an adjunct professor of ethics at Fordham University in New York City. She specializes in reproductive and sexual health ethics and the intersection of ethics and pop culture. She has been published in the New York Times, The Washington Post, Rolling Stone, and The Atlantic, among others. And now on to the show. Hello. Hey, how's it going? Good, how are you? Good. Is it Frog and Toad? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Different one. Uh, yeah, Frog and Toad are friends, and then uh, I forget what the other one's called, but yeah, just whatever the claymation Frog and Toad is, so he's been Oh, loving. the same Frog and Toad from years ago? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Oh, oh sure. that's nice. I'm glad they're still friends. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, actually, I read a thing in The Atlantic. Apparently, uh, the author of that uh, came out to his family as uh, as gay later, and they kind of figured out that this was his way of coming out, so kind of an interesting backstory on that, but, oh. um, but so they were more than friends, I guess, but in the end, but, um, <laughs> anyway. Oh my goodness, it's just like Barry Manilow. <laughs> yeah, right, like, let me, let me grab my fainting couch, uh, with, with non-shock on that one, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> anyway, uh, let people know whatever, uh, you want them to know about you here to start out with. <laughs> Oh, me. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, my name is Elizabeth Yuko. I am a bioethicist, and I'm now the health and sex editor at She Knows, uh, a women's lifestyle site. And I also am an adjunct professor of ethics at Fordham University, where I teach a class on ethics and pop culture. Okay, cool. Um, and now uh, I know from you know seeing your TED talk a little bit uh, what bioethics are, but I wasn't that familiar with it before. I started watching that, so maybe if you could do a quick capsule for people that don't know what bioethics are. Sure. Um, I mean, this, yeah, this is this comes up a lot. It's not just you. Um, I guess that's kind of why I wanted to use sitcoms like uh, The Golden Girls and Seinfeld and, and other shows to teach about bioethics, because it's something that we're all familiar with and we all deal with, just not, you know, with, with the official words. So it's really any difficult decision uh, regarding medicine, uh, human body, um, any sort of medical treatment diagnosis. So basically all the, the difficult topics no one wants to talk about. So stem cell research, end-of-life issues, experimental treatment, any sort of assisted reproduction uh, technologies, abortion, uh, when does life begin and end, those sort of those sort of fun questions. Um, so, for example, this morning I'm working on an article on um, the new 23andMe FDA-approved DNA test kit mm. that can test for up to 10 diseases. And so from a bioethics perspective, I'm basically saying, like, okay, this is this happened. But let's think about your privacy issues. Where does your information go? Let's talk about, um, you know, you're getting these results in your own home, you know, outside of a medical context. You have, you know, appropriate counseling. You know, so basically things to think about um, with any medical decision that you make. Kind of really just a fancy pros and cons list Mm -hmm. and um, alerting people to things that they might not have uh, thought about for their decision-making process before. Yeah, definitely. Now, with that 23andMe, I read something where they were like, uh, this might not be super accurate, too, because they're not drawing from a big sample size when they're comparing you to people. Like, they only have, like, a couple hundred people that they're drawing from. Is there what, is there something to that? 
Uh, yes. I mean, even genetic tests like this where they're looking for specific markers, even when you get it done in a doctor's office or, you know, under optimal conditions, there's still, I mean, there's, they're still not 100% accurate um, where, you know, just because the marker's there doesn't necessarily mean it's going to turn into whatever that condition is. So... It's when you get the testing done in a medical facility, you take them with the, you take the results with a grain of salt, and then in this condition with the smaller sample size that you just mentioned, you're taking that you really be taking your results with a pound of. I mean, it's it, with lots and lots of salt because right. it's um, yeah, and so I mean, I'm concerned that people will you know get these results and start panicking. Um, and I guess on the flip side of that, there's the knowledge is empowering, mm-hmm. which is totally true in, in a lot of situations, um, you know, especially in terms of being informed about what you what you actually have and treating yourself. Um, but with something so unsure, I don't know if it actually is hmm. knowledge and information um, that's, you know, quote-unquote empowering you. So, I mean, where we are right now, if this were to, you know, improve and progress, that might be a different story. But based on what we have at this moment, um, I don't know how empowering it would actually be. So I watched your thing about the Golden Girls, and I thought that was interesting. You were talking about how uh, that show allowed people to talk about uh, things that they wouldn't be able to talk about on other shows simply because of the demographic of people that that were featured in the show. Um, is Is that basically what... What you found? Yes, I think, especially because this was the 80s, uh, you know, and being in the early 90s, uh, especially topics regarding um, sexual health and just sex in general, because the, the women featured in the show were a little bit older and they, you know, they. They weren't graphic. This was not Sex in the City. They weren't, you know, using anatomical terms when they were discussing things. But they were being pretty open and frank about about what they were doing or what they hoped to do. And um, these are things that got past the censors because they just weren't expecting things like this to come out of a, you know, in Sophia's case, an eighty-something-year-old. I mean, not the actress, but you know, the character's mm-hmm. uh, mouth. So, um, yeah, absolutely. And also. Um, from more of a medical perspective, because the women were more mature, they had more potential medical issues, so that gave more opportunities for them to go to the doctor, for them to, um, you know, talk about what's going on in their lives with with each other, and sometimes their children, but usually not. Um, And so you just basically have more medical problems popping up in a show about you know, retired people as opposed to, you know, six friends in New York City in their 20s living together in an apartment. So, I mean, certainly there'll be another set of medical issues there, but, um, you know, with the Golden Girls, they they, uh, they were able to touch on end-of-life issues, uh, organ donation, or, you know, someone, Blanche's sister asked her for a kidney, and she had to decide whether or not she wanted to give it to her. Uh, Sophia's friends got, a friend got Alzheimer's. So, um, these are things that, that wouldn't have popped up also in, in other shows. Right. Now, do you see an equivalent to, not that there's any equivalent to the Golden Girls, I don't want to say that, but is there any equivalent <laughs> uh, in the kind of modern TV landscape that you see that that's also discussing, you know, I, I don't know if you've seen that Frankie and Grace show on Netflix, but I thought that yeah. had some some connections there possibly. Uh, or do you think we're just not living in the same time period now and we don't need the cover of, you know, having that special situation to talk about these things, whereas we can just talk about what we, whatever we want now on TV? Both. Both. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so, uh, yes, I have seen Grace and Frankie, and yes, I, I very much, I mean, I appreciate Jane Fonda and um, Lily Tomlin in any context, really. Of course. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, no, this was especially from um, a mature person's sexual health perspective. I think this is, you know, they're doing a great job of talking about real issues and, you know, logistics and, you know, things like that that might not be the, um, that, well, they aren't really on other shows. So from that perspective, absolutely. But also, I think, uh, to your second point, yeah, TV has changed so much and so things don't have to be you know, thinly veiled as something else. Um, we talk about things a, a lot uh, more openly. And um, in terms of, I mean, and of course there were medical shows at the same time as the Golden Girls. Um, St. Elsewhere, Al- Al- I think, was on at the same time. Um, and uh, probably one or two more. Uh, so, they, you know, there were definitely shows where drama was caused by, you know, medical conditions. But because those weren't comedies, I kind of put them in a separate category. Um but now we have those plus even more in Grey's Anatomy and in House and, well, that's not anymore, but, you know, all of the, just a whole new crop of those. And for a while, Scrubs, where you did have the comedy element combined with the hospital and, you know, difficult medical decision-making uh, components. So um, I guess in short, no, there's nothing exactly like it, but I don't think that would work. I mean, for a while they had Hot in Cleveland mm-hmm. on um, TV land, mm-hmm. although that was a totally different show because these were mature women who looked like they were 25. I mean, not that there's anything wrong with that, but it was their whole thing was about being young, so they weren't necessarily going to be talking about their aches and pains and, you know, health conditions because that was kind of... Mm-hmm. You know, not necessarily the focus. Um, but even that wasn't, yeah. I mean, it was right. great. Betty White was in it. She was fantastic. But, um, yeah, there, I don't think there could ever be another Golden Girls for not just writing and acting, but just uh, time period. Right. Absolutely. Um, now, the other way I, I was familiar with your work was the New York Times piece I read uh, with the title was When You Look Pregnant But You're Not. Um, that yeah. Was, yeah, that was pretty interesting to me, uh, only because, my, not only, but but especially because my, my wife is pregnant now. And uh, people do seem to feel, I mean, this is somebody who is even pregnant, and they just feel so entitled to just reach out, and it's like, what are you, like, no, stop, like, what? You can't touch me in public without asking. It's like it's amazing how entitled some people feel with they see a certain type of, of person or or whatever, and they just feel okay. I can violate your space. Uh, what is oh, up 100%. with that? Yeah. Oh my god! I I wish I knew. Um, so yeah, I mean, from that, it was kind of like a, a twofold thing that that annoyed me. One, uh, obviously, the physical touching. Sure. Um, don't touch anyone in any context. Yep. I don't care what their body shape is. Um, but it's as soon as a woman becomes pregnant, we as, as a society, you know, all of a sudden, like, go into this, like, oh, you know, a child is coming. Maybe she doesn't know what she's doing. Um, you know, let's, t- you know, so, so her body becomes public property. And people think that they're entitled to touch it. So that's number one. And number two is the unsolicited advice, mm-hmm. um, which, <laughs> I mean, both of them are bad, but this one, like, especially annoys me because it's... Um, you know, perfect strangers, like the guy I encountered on the, on the, on the bus mm-hmm. who told me to sit down because I, you know, was standing up and texting on a bumpy bus ride and that was hurting my non-existent fetus. <laughs> and the fact that someone I don't know who does not know my background, doesn't know anything about me, felt the need to say something to me in a public setting about me not being a responsible fake mother. <laughs> 
it's just, it was, it, it blew my mind. And stuff like that happens all the time. And I'm sure your wife's encountered things like uh-huh. this too. Maybe not as obvious, but kind of just subtle. It's big, often come in the form of questions like, mm. oh, so you are doing X, right? Yeah. Or so, oh, so you've already, you know, so you, of course you're going to be breastfeeding, right? You know, so it's this, this culture of not trusting women, mm-hmm. even though, um, yeah, oh. uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah, and I, I think this even extends to actual children when they're you know, actually running around and actually not, you, you after the pregnancy, too. I think this extends beyond then because we've been in line at, like, Target or something, and, and, like, my wife will literally have to, like, turn around to people and be like, stop touching my son. Like, and, like, oh, like this one person was like, oh, but he's cute. And it's like, well, that's not an excuse. You can't just touch people because you think they're cute. I can't touch people because I think they're cute. Stop it. He's, like, he's a human being. He's a small human being but stop it's like is, is there something where they feel like anything that's not i don't know like what it's it extends to children i feel like too so well i mean your son was kind of asking for it by being cute i, mean, I don't know what he's wearing that particular day but i mean it was clearly yeah. provocative enough yeah to clearly it was his fault creatures. yeah so um i mean try to address that moving forward please um, but, uh, yeah, no, it's, you know, you're totally right. And I've noticed this a lot with, I mean, breastfeeding is a big issue in terms of, you know, people shaming people who don't. Um, and then also babies who can't stop crying. I, I mean, if someone, if a parent, doesn't matter, mother, father, whoever, can't get a, a baby to stop crying, that's not necessarily because they're doing a bad job. Mm-hmm. There could be a lot of factors. And just, I've heard a lot of comments on the subway in public about, you know, like, oh, she can't control her child, or, oh, you know, that. Or even the question, it do, is your baby good? Do you have a good baby? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, what? What does that even mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, he's he a bad just, baby. He wears he wears sunglasses and <laughs> hangs out with the wrong babies. Right, exactly. Like, well, he's only four months. But I find him very morally flawed already. Like, that's how? No, just don't ask people if they have a good or bad baby. Anyway, he's, he's irredeemable. So, is, exactly. But this is so pervasive and so common that we don't even think about it. This is just normal conversation. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's something else I, I address in the piece is that yeah, it's someone. It, even if you're not going to be touching someone, which you shouldn't be, mm-hmm. um, you know, if you think someone's pregnant, you don't necessarily have to start off with congratulations or when are you do, <laughs> um, because a they might not be pregnant, b there might be a million other such you know circumstances that are happening, you know that, that they mean you know they might not want to talk about it. Yeah, so it's, it, but that's just so, it's seen as polite. Like you see someone who might be pregnant, you congratulate them. Someone might be pregnant, not by their own choice. You know, there's, there's, we just don't know the backstory to everybody. And um, what we see, or what we've been conditioned to think is just polite public discourse is actually kind of damaging, usually to women. Right. Yeah, definitely. Like, it's like you're all of a sudden, like, because I think you're in this state, not even knowing for sure, I, I am quite suddenly qualified to give you advice about your life. Uh, one thing I really want to talk about, just because I like, uh, just got done listening to this, but I saw you on your Twitter, I followed it to your article about S Town. Um, yeah. So yeah, what did you what did you think of that? First of all, I, I was super enthralled with it, but I definitely had a lot of questions after I got done listening to it here. So same. Yeah, I couldn't stop listening to it. I yeah, it just went everywhere. Which I think 
as a journalist, that was pretty realistic. But sometimes mm-hmm. you start off investigating a story, and that does not end up being the story at all. You just run into a dead end, but something else ends up being the story. So from that perspective, I thought that was realistic. I also thought, um, which I think I mentioned in the article, that the portrayal of his, like, not that he really had an official diagnosis, but that John, the main character, um, his mental health was just very complex and multifaceted. There was no quick, like, he has bipolar depression, slip him, you know, give him, if he would have not been on this medication, his life would have been saved. No, he had, you know, there was mercury poisoning piece, then there was, you know, the not necessarily BDSM, but like the church ritual, the, mm-hmm. you know, therapeutic pain component. And then, you know, the fact that he was semi-closeted for so many years. And you know, there was just, it was very complicated. And I appreciated that they didn't just slap a label on him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think real life mental health diagnoses are usually complicated like that too. So that was realistic. Um, from a journalism ethics perspective, this is, I still keep thinking about it, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, what I would have done in that scenario. Um, I I don't know. I don't really have any good answers. It made me uncomfortable that, um, especially towards the end, when uh, Brian Reed, the host, said, you know, well, this was set off the record, but because, yeah. um, you know, X, Y, Z, I'm going to, uh-huh. you know, say it anyway. Um I'm not saying that was the wrong decision. It's just something that, as a journalist and an ethicist, I would have, you know, that would have been a really uh, difficult decision-making process surrounding that, and probably ultimately I would have erred on the side of respecting his wishes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there, oh, God, there's just so much in there. Um yeah, well, I was reading something about how it was like, uh, you know, that maybe this shouldn't have been made because it was, you know, invasive in a way which he didn't necessarily invite when he, you know, contacted this, you know, the radio show or whatever. Like, I think he wasn't contacting them to do a, a extensive, you know, uh, exploration of his own mental illness or whatever, perceived mental illness. Um, you know, the, he was contacting them for this other reason and, you know, they, you know, kind of went in these other directions. So, I mean, do you do you think they were wrong for, for going that direction? I mean, it was kind of a left turn there, obviously, at the end of episode two that you kind of take. You think you're going to be a murder mystery, and then you go into this other direction. So do you think they were wrong for going the way they did? I was listening to the end of episode two on the subway, and I audibly gasped um, <laughs> when they revealed that he had just killed himself. Yeah. And I went to the point where I thought it was quiet, but it really wasn't because the rest of the train like, looked at me. I'm like, oh, it's fine. I'm okay. <laughs> Like shock. Um, <coughs> I'm sorry. Um, there's a great article in Vox, I think that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I that was the one. Like, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, that it, you know, it was a great podcast, which should have been made. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, that was as soon as I finished listening to it, I'm like, I wonder if anyone's written this particular article, and I found that Vox article. Mm-hmm. So um, I was like, oh, that's something I don't necessarily have to write because someone's already done it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, yeah, consent is always a moving target and a spectrum. So just because someone consents to one thing doesn't necessarily mean, you know, you have like a blank consent to all sorts of things. So that was, um, that was a concern because as you mentioned, like he's John signed up for a murder mystery, not necessarily, um, you know, the exploration of his life. Having said that, I don't know what the behind the scenes consent process looked like. Mm-hmm. I don't know if like John signed some sort of release form saying, 
you know, you could use this story in anything else we discuss as fair game. I mean, typically when you're speaking on the record, whatever you say on the record is, well, fair. Mm-hmm. And um, so John did, I'm assuming you would take these phone calls uh, with Brian mm-hmm. were being taped. He did disclose a lot of personal information about himself. So using that, I, I mean... I think technically it would be okay, but the whole shift in narrative, I think, is a different is a different story. So I don't know if that. Again, I don't have a great answer because, I mean, maybe some good will come of this mm-hmm. being you know out there in the world, and especially in terms of raising awareness of mental health conditions or lack of access to mental health care in the South or in rural areas, or make people feel less alone. So. Now yeah. that it's out there, I'm trying to look at the positive side because mm-hmm. we can't you know, take it back. Yeah. Right. And uh, one part of your article I thought was interesting about how mental health care is hard to get in rural areas. And it just kind of made me think of, you know, years ago, you know, we would, we would have somebody like this and we'd just be like, Oh, he's just eccentric or whatever. He just lives on the edge of town and he's, you know, he's got these quirks, he's a quirky guy, you know, what are you going to do? But now it's like everything has a name and, and like that. So I feel like it, it's still kind of like that in, in a lot of rural areas where understanding of mental health, especially is kind of low and people don't really get uh the nuances or whatever so maybe that's maybe that's a good thing that it will shine a light on that yeah maybe there are parts of the country especially with super rural areas where there's not access to this mental health uh, care where there should be and people need to understand that so definitely and also the stigma component mm-hmm. that it's still very stigmatized even to talk about in a lot of places and um i don't know if i mentioned this in the article or not before i lived in new york and was living in ireland where mental health care is is a lot more stigmatized than it is here. Mm. And um, just having spent several years in in that culture where, you know, you don't necessarily want to talk about it and depression is seen as a weakness or some sort of flaw, it's, it, as someone with mental health issues living, you know, in somewhere where it was highly stigmatized, that doesn't help. Mm-hmm. So um, I think the fact that this exists and is out there um, and, you know, what, when it, it's popular, but popular with you know the NPR set, so I don't know how wide and popular it is. But um, <laughs> yeah, so, I, I guess people um, like me in the rural, rural area are probably already already hip to the things that we need to be knowing about. I guess in that respect, <laughs> I don't know if the guy at the gas station is going to listen to us town and be like, "Oh, finally!" <laughs> right, exactly. Like, oh, I should really stop thinking about mental illness in that person. <laughs> way. Like, thanks, us town. Yeah, but I mean, really, anytime we talk about talk about or write about mental illness, or just kind of people are more open about it, um, I think it just helps the overall conversation. Just helps to normalize it and uh, have it be something that's not, you know, scary. Or I mean, in certain cases, you know, it can be, but um, you know, that it's, it's just another condition. Some people have heart conditions. Some people have arthritis. Some people have, you know, something. Uh, you know, uh, a mental health issue. So, um, yeah, so from that angle, that's, Mm -hmm. I guess, 
I put that in the pro column. For sure. Now, uh, you mentioned Ireland, and I, I student-taught in England, so I'm, I'm a little bit familiar with that with that culture, but it seems like there's a real culture of self-medication as far as uh, that goes, uh, mental illness. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, it's like <laughs> we're going to drink the problems away or whatever, and it's almost seen like you said, uh, it's, it's a sign of weakness if you can't deal with your own problems with your by yourself and just kind of grit your teeth or whatever. So it's, it's like, yeah, they don't really just stuff it down, stuff it down. You know, it's like yeah. that's, that's kind of the culture there. So um, when were you in Ireland? Um, 2004. Took a quick break to finish my degree uh, in 2005 and then 2005 through 2012. Oh, wow. Okay. So awesome. a good a good chunk. Yeah, what was uh, what was that like? Uh, I always wanted to go to Ireland. It, it sounds amazing. It was it was great. It was it was really fun. Um, I felt like in terms of uh, sense of humor and lifestyle, I fit in pretty well there. Um, very well, actually. I just really enjoyed living there. I loved living in Dublin. It was a small city. Um, so it was very accessible. You could walk everywhere, but at the same time, because it was a European capital, you know, you'd have, there was plenty of culture and there was a lot going on there. Um, I was in college the whole time I was there. So I did a master's degree, a law degree and a PhD all while I was there. Um, the latter two were funded, fully funded. So that also helped, um, because no one here was offering to send me to, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, to college for free. So that was, that was great. Um, as a woman who, uh, writes and speaks about reproductive health, however, not the best place. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that was, that was the challenge. Um, I was the ethics advisor for the Irish Stem Cell Foundation, and that was a lot more controversial than it sounds because there was a lot of conflation of abortion with stem cell research, and it was very complicated. And, yeah, there's there's just a lot there that when you're in it and kind of living as part of the culture, you're like, this isn't, this is not good. But then now that I'm a few years removed, I'm like, God, that's, that's really not good. Not just in terms of reproductive rights, but in terms of, um, I mean, it's they're not great with dealing with domestic violence. Mm-hmm. Um, I have had been, uh, very close to a few situations where, you know, women have basically been beaten to death and the guy comes in, you know, um, you know, wearing a nice sweater and a pair of glasses. They're like, oh, he looks like a nice guy. Five hours community service. And it's just, like, it's not taken seriously. And anyway, so there's, I won't get into, like, <laughs> why Ireland's not an amazing place for women. Um, but, I mean, I love my time there, mm-hmm. but... Um, I mean, nowhere is perfect. Sure. Um, But, I mean, even the Irish Constitution was written kind of along with the Catholic Church, so it's kind of a quasi-theocracy in a lot of ways. So, I mean, mean, there's that element, too, that kind of informs public policy on every level. Oh, absolutely. um, 100%. Maybe that's improving over time. I don't know, but... Slowly. It's more as older people are dying. Uh, um, so, and even even younger people can like might not be practicing Catholics, but because uh, you know they were raised in that environment are more culturally Catholic. Mm-hmm. So even if they don't necessarily identify as such, they might you know their uh, social beliefs might be along those lines. But I mean, 
none of my friends went to church. <laughs> I, like, my, I had a very like, liberal, feminine, LGBT. So, I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's not everybody, certainly. But again, I was in Dublin, not in sure. a small town. So I had that that advantage. So yeah. I basically moved my Dublin bubble to New York. Um, <laughs> in your, in your coastal, <laughs> whatever, different coast, I guess now, but yes, exactly. um, well, I guess, yeah, I guess move from <laughs> one coast to the other. East yeah, coast. right. Exactly. Um, now, now with uh, Brexit, I know that some people are talking about possibly reunifying Ireland uh, since, you know, Northern Ireland probably wants to stay in the EU. Do you think there's any chance of that happening? Probably not. Probably um, not. No, that's a lot. I mean, there's a lot going on, but I don't. Yeah, I don't think. I don't think that that was. Yeah, I think that's that's a few steps beyond where we are right now, uh, and um, it's not a situation where all of Northern Ireland, you know, is dying to join the Republic again. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's it's definitely split, and also. Um, I was in Belfast a few years ago and having a conversation with a friend's mother and they would be kind of on the Protestant, like happier part of the UK side. Mm -hmm. And she made a really interesting comment, which has stuck with me, which was um, like, Oh really? You know, they, they want to join the Republic again. (laughs) Wait till they have to deal with the Irish healthcare system instead of the NHS, which Mm -hmm. is like significantly better Mm -hmm. Um, or other things. So it's, and when I thought about it that way, I'm like, I mean, not that people are going to probably, you know, go back and betray, or not betray, but, you know, change their mind on centuries-old conflicts, but um, from a logistics perspective, that would be, that would be interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think, yeah, I don't think that's going to, then again, I did not think uh, Brexit would happen. Right, <laughs> so, yeah, I was shocked by um, that too, so, but I, then I didn't think Trump would happen either, so, well, you don't listen to me on anything, so. Yeah, um, same. <laughs> I was like, this will be great. What? <laughs> um, so anyway, leading into that, one of the uh, when we first started talking, you sent me an article about uh, cult uh, people that were in cults and how that relates to Trump. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that article and kind of the relationship between the two? Sure. I had written a few articles about cults um, previously, and um, one thing that came up as I was writing the articles in the back of my mind is that this reminds me of Trump supporters. But then I was like, no, you are just being political and emotional. Like that's not, that's not a thing you're making this up. Um, but then I was interviewing, um, a guy by the name of Stephen Hassan, who is a cult expert and a former member of uh, the Moonies himself and a psychologist. And, um, we were actually talking about a totally different issue. Uh, someone had written an article saying that cults are very empowering for women. And so I emailed him that morning. I'm like, Stephen, I know you have some thoughts on this. He's like, actually, I do. So we were doing a, like a quick interview on that. And then he kind of broke into, I think this was pretty soon after the election, he broke into this tangent about, and he runs a, um, it's called the Freedom of Mind Institute. He runs a, uh, yeah, basically an organization for former cult members and works with a lot of former cult members um, as a psychologist and tries you know, to help them readjust and just heal, I guess. Um, so he said, this is something that's coming up a lot with his clients. And so I thought, oh, that totally makes sense. And he went into, um, you know, some of the details about that. And then I interviewed a few people who were former club members and, you know, talk about their experience. And um, it was, yeah, it was, it was, 
terrifying, but also really enlightening because I, as soon as she made that connection, my brain initially went to, um, you know, his rhetoric, the, you know, the way he's holding these, these rallies and putting, you know, this blind self-confidence and everything like that. And uh, yes, people said that they were triggered by that. But the thing that came up even more was how scary it was to watch, watch the actual people, like his supporters, um, rally behind him, mm. that that is what reminded them of being in a cult even more so than things that he was saying, mm. that um, that they know that this happened to themselves once they know that they were in a position where um, they were drawn in to a group that was not uh, not good for them, and now they're witnessing basically, I don't want to say half of America, that's not accurate, but like a giant chunk mm. of America um, doing basically the same thing, like ignoring reason and logic and blindly following someone. Um, and they said that's the part that they found most triggering and, mm. and scary. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was interesting. Um, but also scary. Yeah. Um, so, definitely. and it's, I don't think it's getting, that was a few months ago and I definitely don't think it's getting any better. Uh-uh. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, well, yeah, yeah the, the, my interest in that was definitely peaked, uh, because I had interviewed a, uh, survivor of Jonestown years ago and the things that she had told me about Jim Jones definitely lined up a lot with, you know, the, the thing about, you know, he, only he can fix, uh, your problems and, yeah. you know, the charismatic leader coming in and just, you know, you just blindly follow him and it's like, wow, there, yeah, there is a connection here with, with how people, uh, do that. But what do you think it would take? Cause I, I've been struggling with this myself. Like, I don't even know what to say to a Trump supporter at this point. Like, I feel like I just saw him the first time and I was like, this guy is ridiculous. And then, you know, it's like, you're not seeing this. Like, what are, what are you seeing that I'm not seeing here? What could I say to you that, you know, what, what, what would it take to shake them off? Or what could you even say to them? Do you think? I don't know. I don't know either. I, I'm at a loss because, I mean, really everything that I think is going to be like the aha moment mm-hmm. never happens. Like he literally went on TV, or I mean, he didn't go on, I mean, he was on TV, but you know, the Access Hollywood tapes, he, there's the film of him being like, yeah, I'm just going to grab women by the pussy. Like that. <laughs> like, he, like he bragged about sexual assault mm-hmm. and... So that I was like, aha, we got him. Yep. Nope. Nope. <laughs> Apparently that's not a big deal. <laughs> like, we're okay with that. Yeah. Um, so, and, yeah, and then, you know, when the Russian thing started to surface more recently, I thought, like, ah, this is going to be it. Nope, definitely not that. Nope. Flynn resigned. Like, no, nothing, literally nothing that I think is going to help is helping. Um, and that's not, yeah, I mean, there's all that, but I guess, yeah. Again, in my bubble, I don't encounter a lot of Trump supporters, but the ones that I have encountered, the thing I hear over and over is about his authenticity, which is code for overt racism and sexism and homophobia that, you know, oh, he says what he thinks. I think there was actually an SNL sketch recently exactly like, you know, based on this this idea that, oh, he could say whatever is on his mind. It doesn't matter. And, you know, we've been living in a politically correct world for too long. Um, and now we can finally be ourselves. Um, but in that context, ourselves is usually people who want to say racist things or sexist things or homophobic things. And like, that's, no, 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 no. We've moved on from that for a reason. Like, that, we're not, we, let's not go back to that. Um, <laughs> 
But because, you know, they have someone who is, you know, is saying things and even more importantly than that, taking actions like the Muslim, like the travel ban and, you know, kind of constantly threatening um, to defund Planned Parenthood and stuff like that. Someone, you know, on TV who is quote unquote elected president, you know, if he could say and do these things, then surely it's fine if I make comments about, you know, my neighbor, you know, no, no, it's definitely not. But they feel, they feel emboldened by this. And you see this even in the state legislatures, you see these radical bills, um, frequently, uh, related to, uh, LGBT rights. And I, I live uh, in Indiana. Rights. So yes, I'm very familiar. <laughs> oh, <laughs> super familiar then. Yeah. So yeah, and it's, and like there've been several state legis- legislators who've actually gone on the record be like, oh yeah, since Trump won, like we feel like we have like a new wave of support for us to like get these shitty things through. Like, mm-hmm. but, although they didn't describe their policies like that. Um, <laughs> so there's, so it's, it's just, it was this immediate, immediate effect of people being like, oh cool, I can say the things I want to say again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't think reason necessarily works with that set. Um, in terms of no, <laughs> no. So I'm sorry. I have absolutely no good answer. And every time I think we're to a point where where he's done, we are not there. Yeah. Although the most hardcore supporters seem super upset about the Syria thing last night, which I was like, oh, yeah. Okay. Apparently, this is your breaking point. I don't know. <laughs> but okay, whatever. <laughs> right. But then, I mean, if something does happen and we get your delightful former governor mm-hmm. that can't that's not gonna be great either. no that's gonna that's a whole nother nightmare exactly it's <laughs> not gonna be good so yeah. i mean yeah we're, hmm. yeah so. i i don't know how he gets away with having his wife there uh, that wife thing freaked me out so much first of all he calls her mother which okay whatever that's first of all but um <laughs> the only people i've known that did that were john lennon and ronald reagan and they were served for their own reasons but anyway um so that's weird and it's like how are you able to have a career for this long and never be in the room like i'd say most of the bosses I've ever had are women and I can't imagine dragging my wife to work just so I'd have like a three person triad every time I want to talk to my boss. It's like, I don't know, that wouldn't work. Apparently he's never had a woman boss at all. So it's like, I don't know how this would happen. So, um, that's not really a question. I just don't really understand how that works. But anyway, um, yes, no, you're right. that was something when it came out, I was like, okay, I totally believe this, but I also like can't believe this is logistically possible. I kind of like we were mentioning. It was, but like also, yep, this totally sounds right. Like I, I absolutely can see how this would be the case. Um, yeah, and it's like Karen Pence hiding yeah. in a broom closet at any moment to hop out in case a woman were to. It's like, is this like so? Like he can't help it. Like oh, I might, I might do something. I don't know. Hell, stop me! Somebody stop me! <laughs> exactly. How little self control do you have, Mike Pence? <laughs> Lock on the chastity belt. Have, you know, do some. Like, I feel like there's better ways than making your poor wife be your like, yeah. chastity bodyguard. Yeah, get one of those like cat, what cat of nine tails like those like, Catholic people have to like whip yourself. Like I don't know. Is, yeah. is there something you could get? <laughs> bring to bring to work. Um, when you mentioned Planned Parenthood a little bit, and I did see you yeah. changed your uh, your profile picture to, to um, support them, and of course I support them too. But um, is there something maybe where we could just get to a place where we don't have to rely on the government? I know we shouldn't have to be at that.
that place, but it seems like this is always a stick that gets trotted out every time the Republicans are in power. Oh, we're going to defund PBS and public radio and Planned Parenthood and all this stuff, and it's like, maybe we should just be funding things. Our, I mean, I don't know if that's possible, but maybe then that wouldn't be a lever they could pull. Is there something to that? Do you think that's something we should do? Or I mean, the, the healthcare issue kind of goes, I mean, that's kind of a part of the whole bigger healthcare mm-hmm. uh, situation in America yeah. in terms of, uh, I mean, that's just kind of one one act. If you can't afford a primary care physician, if you can't afford regular doctor visits, you definitely won't be able to afford a specialty visit to the gynecologist or for, you know, your regular screenings. So um, a lot of the services, or most of the services Planned Parenthood offers it also have a public health component. So, I mean, yes, of course, it's about keeping the patient healthy and, you know, treating them if necessary, but, you know, also doing STI and HIV screenings. So, you know, having those available, you know, at the low cost or free, um, you know, just makes it much more accessible to people. And I don't know if there would be a way to have that be privatized and still accessible. I'm guessing probably not. Mm. Um, so I think at least for, for Planned Parenthood, a lot of that I frame in more of a public health uh, context. Mm-hmm. And in that case, I think, you know, having funding from the government definitely is beneficial, but um yeah, and, when, and, and none of that goes to abortions either. It's all for the things no, you're talking it about. It's just for, I mean, they already can't They already can't do that. It's just Medicaid reimbursements for people visiting for other reasons, right? I mean, that's already something exactly. we've, we've determined. So, um, And I never understood the, again, this may be not a question, just a more of a statement. I never understood the whole thing with, like, I'm pro-life, but I'm not going to do anything that will allow you to not be in a situation where you're going to need an abortion. Like, it's like if you were serious about that, it seems like you would be so hardcore about getting, you know, so much access, as much access as possible to these things. So I don't really understand that part of it, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then what else can you say? <laughs> I wish I did. Yeah, it's it's tricky. I mean, I grew up, in, I went to Catholic school and grew up Catholic, um, and it was just, the, you know, you can't play God. You can't abort a fetus. You mm-hmm. can't stop a sperm from, you know, sperm from fertilizing an egg. Like you can't take. There's no intervention permitted. Um, so, I mean, if you're coming at it from a Catholic moral theological perspective, that's one thing. But I'm pretty sure a lot of these people aren't aren't thinking that way. You know, that's mm-hmm. not kind of their that, that that's not the reason behind their decisions or their their actions. Um, but no, it absolutely makes sense that you know if if you want to help stop you know, pregnancy, unwanted pregnancy rates or unplanned pregnancies, um, you know, make contraception more accessible. No, well, why would we do that? That's, mm-hmm. that's too logical. It's, yeah, so it's, yeah, again, I have no good answer <laughs> for that. That was, I mean, like, during the whole, um, you know, back when the Trump, quote-unquote, Trump care uh, plan was, was still not dead, um, I, I'm, like, trying to think of, like, ways to phrase this that, you know, would, I mean, not that, like, one comment or tweet for me would change anything whatsoever, but I'm thinking, like, oh, the people that would be covered, they were once fetuses. Like, you could protect the fetus for just a little while longer, like, after it's out of the body, and you love fetuses. So, <laughs> It's like that George Carlin quote, I'm a birth survivor. <laughs> yes, you know? exactly. But, 
yeah, exactly. So yeah, no, they need to they need to make the connection somehow, and I don't know how to do that. But you're right, it is about control because on the other end of it, it's like they don't want you to have, uh, you know, if you were to want to do assisted suicide, they don't want you to do that either. So it's like they don't want you to have control on either end of it. So um, that seems to be the real thing that they're concerned about is is the control, not the actual, you know, health or safety or anything. But anyway. Um, <laughs> sorry, I don't. I, I'm, I'm asking too many hard questions. I guess I don't. I just don't, don't no, feel like no, I have no. answers. <laughs> Some of this stuff, I'm just flabbergasted. Um, but this is how it's what it's like to live in Trump's America. It's just <laughs> constant yeah. amazement. Um, now uh, you're an editor that works with freelance writers a fair amount, right? I do. So, what would your advice be to freelance writers who are trying to break in and, and get the attention, maybe, of, of editors and, and work with them on on that basis? Oh, this I have a lot of thoughts on because I also, I mean, I freelance for a while and still kind of do some, some you know, an article uh, on the side here or there. Mm-hmm. So I guess one of the, the easiest thing you can do is if you're pitching a specific site, which you should, don't ever send, <laughs> you know, like I actually got an email the other day where it was like, the Red Book Health Editor. And, you know, a bunch of us just all copied in the same email. No, 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 no. Do not do that. Absolutely do not do that. That is, that is, I, no. Straight to trash. <laughs> right. So, first of all, yeah, that's lesson number one. Don't do that. But also, um, read the section that you're pitching to to make sure that they haven't just run an article on what you're mm-hmm. pitching. I get so many emails that I just... You know, I, I, re- I try to respond to absolutely everything because, and I have actually even responded to the person who sent the multiple editor thing because they've pitched me so many times in so many different weird ways. And I was finally like, listen, no, <laughs> save your, like, you, if you want to do it right, you can. I'm not going to respond to these other things. Um, this is be your own good. Um, but check to see what they published. So much, yeah, so many of the emails I send out are thank you so much for this really interesting pitch. I love the idea so much, in fact, that I wrote about it last week. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, but in a nicer way. That's not professional. Um, you know, with, you know, kind of. <laughs> but that happens so frequently, even with writers I work with on a very regular basis. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and because because of uh, you know, online publishing is you know, it's not like old newspaper days where there's a morning edition and an evening edition. Like it's things are constantly being added. So even if you check the site yesterday, check it again right before you send mm-hmm. the pitch. Um, so that is. That's a really big one. Um, don't just ask for a column. Mm. Um, I've had a lot of people say, hey, I want to write a column for you. Okay, great. I don't know you. I've never worked with you before. Um, I'm certainly open to those arrangements, and I do work with, with some amazing regular writers um, that I'm super fortunate to work with. But, um, like, start with one article. Pitch one idea. Like, let's work through this together, and then, you know, take it from there. But that. Yeah, mm-hmm. kind of start small and don't don't go in too high. Um, making sending clear pitch emails, so not just I want to write about the death penalty, um, which has literally been pitches I've received. Mm. No, what do you want? You know, what? Why you? So yeah, I guess yeah, I want to hear why should you be the one to write about this. Mm-hmm. What are you writing about? Like in a very like what's what's your angle? Um, why now? So why is this something we should care about right now as opposed to six months from now or last year? Um, and why would the audience care about it? And why would someone actually want to read about it? Because if you can't answer these questions, then it's hard for me to sell the piece to my editors and get excited about it. And 
um, and that sort of thing. So just sending an email saying, I want to write about um, arthritis in women. Great. Super interesting topic. I, I am interested in writing about arthritis in women, but what angle, you know, is it, you know, def- the more specific, the better. So, um, yeah, so that would definitely help. Uh, um for personal essays, I would need to see the whole thing on spec, which I know is not great, but um, especially if, we, if we've worked together several times, that's one thing. But if you're cold pitching an editor that you've never worked with before, sending a two-line pitch for a personal essay is not going to work mm. um, because they don't know what you're going to say. They don't know your story. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like uh, for a reported piece. So that. So for, for essays, yeah. you're saying you would want to see a more completed, or I guess the whole thing, as opposed to if you're just being pitched on like a regular story, you would just need kind of an outline. Is that what you're saying? Would or or do you want to see it more fleshed out in that case too? Um, no, if it's a reported piece or a feature or you know a service piece, then yeah, I don't need to see the full article mm-hmm. because actually in that case, I'd rather only hear you know, right. your initial ideas because I don't want you, the writer to have to go off and do research and then I decide like oh actually this angle is better. Mm-hmm. So for that, it's definitely. Um, you know, a quick paragraph, a hundred words, a few bullet points, right. a quick outline, something like that would definitely work best. But if it's a personal essay, um, then definitely, you know, ideally the whole thing would mm-hmm. be would be good. So um, it just saves time instead of going back and forth. Like, oh, that sounds like an interesting idea. Could I see it? And then they send it over, and then you say, I have to say, I'm sorry. This isn't what I'm looking for. And then there's the inevitable, like how could I fix it? What did I do wrong? And it's usually not that they did anything wrong. It's just usually not a great fit or, you know, so that's, and I guess actually that leads me to another one is just because something, an editor passes on something, it does not mean it's bad. It could mean so many different things. It could mean that we have another article just like that already in the pipeline. It could mean that, um, from an SEO perspective, it just doesn't work for the site. There's just certain topics that we've tried writing about, and we look at the numbers, and they just don't perform well with the audience. So it could be a super interesting article and one that would work really, really well on another site, but just wouldn't be right for us. Mm-hmm. So, um, and that's something I understand so much more as an editor than I did when I was uh, just exclusively freelancing, mm-hmm. because you would have this idea and be like, I think this is so amazing, and then you'd eventually end up selling it to somebody. But... You know, it's not that it was ever bad or poorly executed or anything like that. It's just that there's so many other components into going into um, what's selected for publication. Right. I'm and sorry, that was a huge. That was a super long answer. Oh, that's that's um, um yeah, that's fascinating. Um, so I uh, I always wonder about this. When are you supposed to talk about the payment as far as like what you get paid? Because I know some places just say you know in the writer's digest or whatever where it's like how much they would pay. But like, are you supposed to do that when you first approach them? Do you wait them for them to say something? Like, what, what's that? I think that's a, that difference from editor to editor. So certain mm-hmm. publications, um, as you mentioned, will just have a flat rate, and that's it. Right. No negotiation. If you take it or leave it, that's mm-hmm. it. Um, so how I usually do it is if sometimes if I approach a writer and um, say, I have this, which I did recently, I said, I have this topic, I had this writer in mind that I really wanted to cover it because she had written something sort of similar for me before and did a great job with it. Mm-hmm. So I just said, hey, I've got this assignment. Do you want it? Um, I would like it to be 800 to 1,000 words. I could pay you X for this. And so I initiated that one. But if someone pitches me, um, 
it would be a little bit presumptuous, very presumptuous if in their pitch email they said, I would like X for this. Um, so that you would definitely wait until something's accepted. So I, I usually, I make the offer when I accept something. Mm-hmm. So if I read an essay or if I accept a, you know, a, a service piece or um, a reported feature, I'll say, great, I'd love to publish this. I'm thinking, I usually do put three a sentence with, you know, the three uh, pieces of information. Like, I would like it to be X amount of words. I could pay you this, and I would like this to be the deadline. Um, does this work for you? And then from there, there could be a negotiation back and forth on all three counts. Mm-hmm. Um, but... But yeah, I I usually put that out first. Um, right. Well, it just doesn't seem advantageous at all to like throw out a number cold. It just seems like if you say too high, it's like you're gonna you know nobody's gonna want to hire you. And then if you say too low, you could be leaving money on the table unless you guess the exact. You know what I mean? It's like a negotiation. Yeah. I don't know how to approach, but uh, absolutely. Yeah. But I yeah. guess yeah, waiting for them to to say that would probably be good. Um, so, is there any articles that you're working on that you got coming out that you want to let us know about? Um, I mean, in terms of today, yeah. <laughs> the, the 23andMe um, kind of cool. what you should know about mm-hmm. this, uh, that will be later today. Um, what else? I recently interviewed Rebecca Skloot, um, author of The Immortal Life of Henri- Henrietta oh, Lacks. awesome, which yeah. Which is um, going to be an HBO movie starring Oprah Sweet. Um, coming out later this month. So we talked about research ethics and we talked about... About um, women's, uh, like empowering women uh, to make medical decisions and also what it's like to get a phone call from Oprah. So, touched on a lot of different bases. And so, I'm excited about that. Um, what else? Yeah, I mean, lots of lots of different things. Another one on um, the pleasure gap or orgasm gap and whether or not that's, not whether or not, how that's um, a women's rights issue. And um, I've done a few really interesting interviews with that. Another one on uh, sex ed for people with disabilities. Hmm. Um, so that's, yeah, I mean, lots of... Yeah, lots cool. of different things. Um, so, yeah. That's sweet. Um, so we're getting near the end here, and I always ask this. Uh, what music have you been listening to lately? Oh, um, The Supremes. Nice. Um, I, I mean, that's been a constant throughout my life, but... Um, I go through phases where I'll just listen to like similar things over and over again, and um, I'm actually going to go see Diana Ross in a few weeks. Mm. So in preparation, um, I mean, not to, to study it or anything, but just because I'm excited. Um, I've been listening to that. Although, unfortunately, not unfortunately, because I've been listening to so many podcasts lately, my commute has been um, like mostly talking rather than music but um me too but yeah when i'm <laughs> but when i'm home and cleaning or you know doing stuff like that it's usually on the girl groups pandora station nice. um or like 60s motown um so that's yeah that's yeah definitely. that's where i am right now yeah i've been trying to educate my son in the classics so we've been listening to a lot, a lot of that stuff lately for sure um but uh is there anything else i didn't ask you about that you want to get in before we go no, I think you've, you've covered a lot. Cool. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm glad we finally got a chance to connect here. And uh, I know. I'm sorry. It's been so difficult. <laughs> no, it's okay. It was worth it. Uh, so, yeah, I'll send you a link here later today when it's up. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. No problem. Thank cool. you. Have a good rest of your day. You too. Right. Take care. Bye.
you enjoy this podcast, there are several ways to support it. I have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com forward slash Rob Burgess Show Patreon. I hope you'll consider supporting in any amount. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review the podcast everywhere it's available, which includes iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Facebook, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, and RSS. It really helps. The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgessshow.com. You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. Until next time.